You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, Annie here for Showreel on 3CR, your community radio station. On Showreel, we focus on Australian film, moving image and the industry which supports it. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the filmmakers who are screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. First this week is Jess Scott, whose Rainbow Video is screening at the Nova in Carlton this Saturday, 22nd of July at 6.40pm. So essentially it didn't have any funding. What it was was an outcome for my PhD um, research, uh, which I did uh, with the support of a scholarship from RMIT, so the Vice Chancellor's Scholarship at RMIT, which also includes a little bit of research money every year, which I used for, among other things, paying for camera people to help out and various other expenses to do with it. But it didn't actually start out as a film project, so it sort of was made over a long period of time and then it sort of like finally came together as a film at the end. All right, so the film that we're talking about is called Rainbow Video. What was your PhD question? My PhD question was about the relationship between uh, video shops, specifically independent or outhouse ones in Melbourne, and also lending collections, like such as the Acme and Cinemedia collections, and the relationship between those libraries and artistic practice. So the kind of community of video artists and media artists in Melbourne who used them, who frequented them, who worked in them, and who, you know, this sort of like two-way influence between these shops and these artists. Well, of course, it plums right into the Marshall McLuhan notion that once you go into a different medium, then something is always left behind. And that's what you, yeah. disco- that's what you discover really, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that um, I think when I first started the project, I think I was thinking of video shops as being this thing that was disrupted by streaming when in fact like as the more research I did and the more interviews that I did what became more clear is that they sort of sit on this continuum and that there are after effects of the medium of video shops even though it was kind of a brief moment in film distribution unlike what had come before and un- sort of in a lot of ways unlike what came after but there are definitely echoes of it, not just in streaming services, but in, 
you know, many of the ways that people engage with film culture online and in person yeah. and in any uh, practice. You talk to a whole lot of people. You talk to them about their experience of interaction with video uh, shops and how this was a cultural experience, not just a, a transactional experience. A hundred percent, yeah. And I think that um, that's kind of what's interesting about video shops to me, where they are kind of a blended space. They were very commercial and in one hand. They were small businesses that were really cashing in on the boom in home video. But because of the, almost because it was this kind of like um, benign indifference of these uh, video shop owners, they ended up becoming this repository of like this incredible diversity of content. So, you know, stuff from many decades previous was sitting alongside new releases. You had art house films, you had all these different kind of things mixing together and that became a very rich generative space for not just artists but people who didn't know they were artists yet, you know, like it became an access point for people who didn't know what they were going to find in those spaces and came away kind of like with their eyes opened to lots of different possibilities for moving image, for film, for culture and also like they were spaces that culture and knowledge was expanded in I think you know new ways of thinking about film emerged from from that culture in terms of an appreciation of you know high and low if you want to call them that um, genre film uh, and all those kind of like really rich and interesting parts of culture that we kind of take for granted now. It's a conversation your film and obviously you it started off with ideas, but uh, because you're interviewing all these different people, you come up with further questions that you want to pose to them. And one of the things that I found really fascinating is the concept of curation, because even though the shops themselves were, they're like uh, libraries, but mm-hmm. libraries have got more connotations to them than just mm-hmm. a commercial outlet. But it, human knowledge actually accumulates in a space and then all those people who know nothing except for perhaps the latest advertisement suddenly realise that there's this huge uh, backdrop, uh, 3D thing going on and that's culture. 100%, yeah, I think that's um, a great observation. Yeah, it definitely is a conversational film to pick up on that. I think because there was a real relationship between the interviews and and then the questions that I asked and the ideas that came out of it so the the interviews really were this kind of engine of the research because I was doing kind of primary research in, in conducting those interviews and discovering the history of this sort of niche culture as I was going so I didn't come in with a huge amount of ideas to impose on the material it actually kind of like spoke back to me a lot um But, yeah, what you're saying about libraries is really true, that they, you know, as wonderful as, like, like community libraries and archives and all of those things are so important and so valuable, there was something really interesting about this space that didn't have a sense of canon or, you know, official um, ways of organising or, you know, putting information into a hierarchy. It was really, like, down to the people who worked in the shops and their relationship to the customers and what the customers wanted And a lot of those people were artists, filmmakers, you know, enthusiasts, um, cinephiles, and they could kind of really delve into their, like, interests and also make connections across the material that wouldn't happen in the same way in an archive or a lending, you know, a lending library. 
Yeah, so well, we that was sort of opened up this space. Yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, happen. and of course, the people that you talk to are real, really kooky and interesting people themselves. I mean, uh, and so you delve into that as well, which is kind of nice. Uh, the reason for why they like what the Alice in Wonderland went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, and I think you know one of the ways that uh, I see a connection between video shop culture and online culture. Um, if you use the example of something like Netflix's Stranger Things, that series, not only does it kind of like have this nostalgia for that era, for the 80s, and sort of, you know, with its constant, you know, references and Easter eggs in it to other films. So not only does it sort of have that nostalgia, but it could not exist. Like I don't think a film like that could exist without the video shop culture that produced that kind of encyclopedic knowledge of film, if that makes sense. Like, no, no, I do. You I couldn't do actually so. have that kind of, yeah, yeah. You couldn't I mean, actually it, have that kind of knowledge before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting too because I, the, uh, on one hand, the uh, they're trying to encapsulate the 80s as being the greed period, you know, the period where the explosion of the corporations and all the rest of it. While my experience of the 80s is much more what you are showing in your uh, film, which is this absolute fascination for uh, cultural detritus, as well as the politics behind the fabric of our society which I suppose is running in parallel to the greed corporations. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of in relationship with each other, aren't they? Yeah, of, One's a reaction right. to the other. Yeah. I mean, I was fascinated yeah. by uh, Phil Brophy's um, metic. I love the way in your film you actually have his whole uh, meticulous understanding of how the um new technologies that he was that was being offered to him could actually answer the problems that he had because that was the world I was in you know and yeah. you and in the film you actually allowed him to describe it I just found that really fascinating I think I hope it comes across I mean I really think that we owe such a debt of gratitude to people like Philip Brophy for codifying and defining those fields of you know um study and and film that were really neglected you know like he talks about how he really was just building this knowledge as he went through watching the credits on the film and writing down the director and then trying to find something else by that person and it's so easy to just look up that stuff online now but that's because there's so many people like Philip Brophy who are you know really passionate and fascinated and compelled to delve so deeply into something that is really marginal to so many other people, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I really no, wanted to right. show how that knowledge was built, you know. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. I also found it interesting because, like you say, you're not a filmmaker or you haven't been a filmmaker previously. And no, so how no. you construct this film is quite interesting because you use the camera in a very 80s way, which is you let it stay there. <laughs> And we watch the outside of spaces that are very ordinary. And I love that, like the people coming in and out of things, documenting what's actually there rather than transducing it through some sort of cultural um, belief structure. It's quite nice. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that probably comes from my video art background where, 
you know, there is like more license to kind of sit and stay with things for a longer period of time and, you know, the way that you frame things. You know, like I really wanted people to look at these spaces in a different way. And if if I leaned into kind of fast editing or trying to re- recreate something from the period when they were really um, contemporary, I think that you would see, you know, our imagined idea of the video shop, but I really wanted to show what was there when I shot them because a lot of them were kind of like in their final days when I shot them and there's a lot of like interesting detail um, in those shops that's not just, you know, they're sort of like they are time capsules but they also speak to the transition that was happening in that moment, you know, the, the kind of economic transition and the cultural transition and the transition of film distribution and all of those, yeah, all of those little details are kind of in there. That moving through the uh, space is really lovely. I re- that's so amazing, the amount of effort and work that someone put into visualising and then making that happen. That that shop in particular was quite extraordinary. Are you talking about Picture Search, the opening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an incredible space. And that's what the only video shop in the whole film that's still operating. You can see why they were so attractive because... Browsing is attractive, isn't it? A hundred percent. I think that, um, yeah, another aspect of the research that I've done behind the film is looking at how physical objects in space kind of aid cognition. You know, they're sort of like this scaffolding to thought and how that's such a different experience from browsing something online, you know, like something on a screen, actually having objects around you and walking through a space where things are calling for your attention where you can see things in your peripheral vision, you know, these connections can suddenly be made across time and space that, you know, are unanticipated. And that's something that is not replicated, you know, in any other space in film culture now. I think it certainly still exists in bookstores and record stores and other kind of um, library spaces, but I think it, it was definitely something unique for film culture at that time. And, yeah, I guess like that's another thing I wanted to show in those sequences with the video shots was how they were set up and how they, what it felt like to be in them, you know, like what that sort of like just incredible kind of um, bombardment of like visual stimuli, but also the physicality of it, of moving through these aisles and being surrounded by objects is, you know, we, yeah, to us, to, a, to us an extent, that's the thing that we've lost. Romero said that about how where do people do this stuff anymore? How do they mm. interact in a physical space? Mm. Which is this is a compelling question. Yeah. That's what humans uh, do. Yeah, exactly. I think it's interesting. Like I've read some articles recently about how, for example, if you look at the music streaming, I read this great uh, article by Ted Joyer, I think his name is, about how in the music industry, objects have made a comeback. I mean, not physical media in terms of necessarily CDs, but people, vinyl is going strong, stronger than ever. People buy it not just to listen to it, but as collector's items to have the artwork and the cover notes. Um, People buy merchandise. Like there's still a desire to have those kind of like that physical attachment and, and it hasn't gone away, but it's sort of changed or transmuted into, you know, something else. You must be quite pleased that it's uh, going to be at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. That Was that a surprise to you? Absolutely. I'm completely thrilled. I mean, this is the first 
film I've ever made, like first feature film. I yeah, it's totally thrilling, especially because it's going to be at the Nova Cinema, and that's absolutely one of the kind of my formative places for uh, becoming interested in moving image, cinema, art. Um, I've been going there since I was a little kid, so that's kind of mind blowing. I'm incredibly excited about that. Yeah. Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Judith Ehrlich. I'm the director of the film The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance in the Vietnam War. I'm really pleased to be here on 3CR. I'm an old listener-sponsored radio producer myself and worked at the first listener-sponsored station in the world, KPFA, Berkeley, part of the Pacifica Network. So good work. Keep it up. Thanks. You're with Annie on 3CR, your community radio station. This is Showreel, focusing on the Australian moving image industry. We're speaking with some of the featured filmmakers in this year's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Now we turn to one of the four shorts programs being shown. Number one short session this Sunday, the 22nd of July at 10.30, includes Kyoto's Country directed by Nicola Bell. I spoke to Nicola about this film. How did you get involved in making this film? Because it's important, isn't it? Yeah, it is important. Coyota, Audrey Coyota-Stewart, um, she is a Lower Southern Aranda and Wanganguru woman from Udnadada, and she has been recording her language with a linguist called Celeste Humphreys. And I'd worked with Celeste in a small community in southeast Arnhem Land before. And Audrey wanted to make a short film documenting her country and some of her language. She's the last speaker of Lower Southern Aranda. She's the last speaker of that language. And so she wanted to document that. And, yeah, Celeste asked if I would work with them on that. Are you a filmmaker by trade? No, but I had done two short films in an, another highly endangered language, Wagilak. So I've been working as a stills photographer and a musician about probably six or seven years ago now. I went out to Mukur, which is um, the remote community that I mentioned, to visit a, another linguist friend, Salome Harris, and I took my camera with me just to take some photos if anyone wanted. And we ended up travelling out to another community. There are nine languages in that community, and we documented uh, a couple of those. So I just used my stills camera for that and then ended up working with community up there to make a short film, which turned into another short film and then this short film. (laughs) It's a collaboration, isn't it, a making of this type of film? Audrey wants you to make this film she's uh, asked you to but she has quite clear ideas about what it is that she wants to get across doesn't she oh yeah of course absolutely I'm there with a camera you know to to document what what she wants to do 
you know, like I say, she's the last speaker of, of her language and she's 73 years old. She wants to get that down for her family and for anyone who's, who's interested as well. I mean, we, we go up to country and it, it's quite a different experience because uh, what you're doing is taking people, you know, from as far-flung places who are unacquainted with her lands and we're being privileged, really, to be introduced to understanding what's significant. It's an unusual film because it's not a film with a beginning, a middle and an end because it's not that sort of a film. What it is is a film that is actually almost uh, alive with all the potential and possibilities that we're completely unaware of as people who are not part of her culture. I mean, that's how I experienced that film. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it too. And, you know, like I say, I, I, you know, I've gone out with the camera to do whatever, I, you know, whatever is required of me. Um, it, it didn't, as you say, it doesn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. It, it was really a case of we, we're going out to document what Audrey wants to show. Um, so it didn't really have a narrative in that sense. And it was a bit tricky because, I mean, you, you drive into Udnadatta and there's the sign at the start that says Australia's hottest, driest um, town and we just got smashed with <laughs> crazy rain and insane weather so it was really a case of darting out to places as we could and filming um, while we were there. This is an interesting uh, space for you because you're not of her culture and this is a very big privilege isn't it? Tell me about that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge privilege. I guess for reference, the two short films that I'd worked in up in Nukur um, were working with Wagilak, a group of Wagilak men, and I'd got to know them before we even thought about making a film. And so I, you know, I knew them, I knew something about the culture, I'd been learning the language. And so, and, and even, I mean, it, but, but to go out to their country and to to experience that and to be given that opportunity is a, is a massive, yeah, it is, it, it is a massive privilege, which also, I guess, carries, feels for me like a, a sense, you know, the weight of trying to get across what they want to get across. We went out with um, Richie, who's Audrey's uh, nephew, you know, the people that I'd worked with on their country, I, I, I was familiar with them. I was, kind, you know, familiar with the culture, whereas this time this was a, an entirely different thing. So I'd worked with Celeste, the linguist, but and I knew about Audrey and she had spent a lot of time with Audrey and is friends with her, with Koyada. Um, she has two names. Koyada, yeah. <laughs> um, I just and, didn't want to say it incorrectly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, um, yeah, so I was not, familiar with her culture at all or her language or her as a person really and it's so vastly different um to what you know I encountered up north and and that's something that you know I think that a lot of us white fellas don't really know about is the you know the richness of culture and of languages in this country that I mean they are different countries you know it's like going to Spain versus Iceland it's they are different countries they have their own culture and and languages I think there's so there's so much wrapped up in you know the various cultures of Australia as well I mean 
I'm a massive language nerd. I love languages. I've always loved languages. Wherever I've been in the world, I've always tried to at least learn a handful of phrases because, you know, you just learn and you feel so much about a culture, I think, or about a people from the language itself. And, you know, it's just manners aside from anything. And so I did the same thing when I went out to visit a language friend um, up in southeast Arnhem Land. And that, I mean, that really is what set me on the path of making films. First it was documenting some language um, because I think, you know, the Language Centre were recording audio but they weren't doing video. So I, you know, had my stills camera and just used that. This um, film now, Coyotes Country, is the first of the three shorts that I've made that was actually filmed on a camera dedicated to cinema not to not to stills um photography so so how did it get into the melbourne documentary film festival i entered it <laughs> yeah it's um like i say it was it was made for querida and for her family and to you know to document that for her but as i was editing it i was thinking you know like you say a lot of us i guess and i guess a lot of people making documentary are doing it because we're passionate about the topic that we're filming. And so, you know, I've, I'll talk anyone's face off about languages and <laughs> how, you know, the, the dire situation that they face in Australia. Um, and so I thought, and it had popped up somewhere that the um, entries were closing for Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and I live in Melbourne and I thought, why not? give it a crack and it got in so we're really really chuffed obviously it's a great festival um and Coyota herself and Richie her nephew who's in the film they are coming over for the film festival and Celeste who's the linguist and producer is coming down from Darwin as well so we're getting the band back together <laughs> that's it for showreel this week look up MDFF's website Melbourne Documentary Film Festival for more details of the festival screenings over the next few weeks. Hope to see you there. Up next is Published or Not.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.